Jaren Cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast with three lifelong Doctor Who fans, I'll introduce them to you shortly, discuss, enthuse and occasionally criticise a trio of products related to our favourite show. That might be televised adventures, both classic and recent, could be spin-off novels, books about the show, biographies, magazines, basically anything that gives us the excuse to talk about Doctor Who. So, let me introduce my co-conspirators. Say hello, David. Hello everyone, David here. And Kenny, hello. Hello. The most important thing is, do you both take sugar or just milk? A couple of sugars would be sugar. great, yeah. You take... Just milky, milky. Right, okay. There's milk and all of you, put your own sugar in. Um, this, is all this, this is real sound effects, this, this, is, isn't, this, is it, yeah. this isn't the BBC Radiophonic Not Workshop. Sorry. Eat your heart out, Benji Clifford. Well, it is 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Oh, yeah. And we don't have crisps. We don't have crisps. Just yeah. bacon rolls. Although mine's gone already. You can have the mug with the dog. Awesome. You can have Terrific. the frankly girly looking mug. <laughs> okay, since I love six. And have one with trains on it. Because you love those trains. Right, we're going to be talking about the most recently uh, released Blu-ray box set, which is season... Season 23. Season 23. Time Lord. I call upon the Valyard to open the case. By order of the High Council, this is an impartial inquiry into the behaviour of the accused person known as the Doctor, who is charged that he, on divers occasions, has been guilty of conduct unbecoming a Time Lord. Not guilty! And there's four episodes, four adventures in it, so Indeed. it doesn't fit particularly closely. Well, hold on, we'll, 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 we'll explain all this. On the face of it, it doesn't fit particularly neatly into the Power of Three format, although that doesn't really matter too much, because... As we know, Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around, as the <laughs> Lord says. Um, so tell us, Dave, explain why this fits more neatly into the Power 3 format well, than I had assumed. It was made under three production codes. There we are. Is it six, I want to say six A, B, and C, but I don't know if that was right. Is it? it is six A, six is it? A, six right, C. There we go. That's the. That's you, how, you, you, that's two, how, <laughs> you two really need to get out more. I know. You're that's such an amateur, Tom. I don't I know how to catch up. That's how sad. Yeah, that's how sad I am. I can remember the, the See, specific production. He said with a mouthful of bacon roll. Yes, I am in this relationship. I am the one that ordinary, normal people can relate to. Right? <laughs> you two are the geeks that yes. all the fans relate to. Yes. So that's why we're the popular ones, Tom. Yes, I like <laughs> I do like the word geek. It's nice. It's very friendly. It's a soft edge. Um, yeah, three production codes. Um, and yeah. the interesting thing, of course, that. The um they filmed the con- we're getting ahead of ourselves but they filmed the conclusion before the oh did they before they made the the third sort of With Michael Jaston yeah did you see it when it was first broadcast David I did yes so and you did as well I did indeed one. yes I'd actually followed this through production through the Doctor Who Appreciation Society newsletter Celestial Toy Room because I first joined the society in May eighty five in the height of that hiatus and uh, so obviously followed all that was going on and all excited when they started shooting that March or April. 1986, and it's back. Interesting. What was the, what? How did the sort of level of um, 
information sort of compared with what we get nowadays via sort of trickled I think it all came via the production office and newspaper cuttings right. so right okay it wasn't anything like we have now you know there's always been there's always been with the classic show not the new show but but in the classic show for more mature fans there's always been an element and Toby Haydock writes about this quite a lot and talks about it in his shows a level of embarrassment when you watch it with people who are not fans. Yep. Yeah. Right? You yeah. know, because of special effects yes. and sometimes the acting's yeah. a bit ropey. Yeah. For me around about this period, this was when I was really starting to lose patience with it. Okay. Because I was a I was a, I was a, a student. Uh, I was watching it in a flat with other students. Of course. And it was a difficult time to kind of be a fan. Yeah. And th- this was a year obviously before Sylvester McCoy came on board, which for me was the, the rod that broke the camel's back. Um, so I was already disenchanted with it to a certain extent. I mean, I, I remember watching this in quite an angry state of mind. Really? Because I really thought... And then, and then of course, Bonnie Langford right. makes her first appearance yeah. in this. And for me, you know, that was a step too far. I couldn't be seen by friends watching any show with Bonnie Langford in it. I had a kind of similar sort of thing, in as much that I I drifted quite a bit during the hiatus, during the you know the gap between mm-hmm. season twenty two. Um, I got that's when I properly got into comics. Now, there were, I was still I, I even actually stopped buying Doctor Who magazine <gasps> during the during the period. The, the, Heretic. I know it was a bit of during nineteen eighty six, but also at the same time I um, and I, I don't I'm sure I've told Kenny this before. There was one episode of Trial that um. I didn't actually see when it was broadcast. I taped it because I was going out with my pals. It's the you know, and I didn't actually watch it before the following week. That was the clo- That was the extent of my mm. wasn't disinterest caused by the trial. I just I drifted. I remember feeling disconnect, quite underwhelmed by the first few episodes. But then, get you know, certain elements, certain things that happened in episode eight kind of kicked the interest back in a little bit. I was like, all right, here we go. And then um, I remember talking to one of my friends at school about Bonnie's first episode and or both of us sort of admitting yeah she was actually quite good then the stuff started to emerge about what was happening with Colin Baker and so the interest for the last couple of episodes was quite peak and during 1987 I was a bit more interested in, and as we discussed previously you know season 24 brought me back in with a vengeance. Kenny tell us about the political context of all of this because we know that the show was on trial Indeed. Michael Grade was the director general and there's a big question mark over the show. He had tried to cancel it already? Or he, he actually had cancelled it, and then it came to the, the media outburst and saying, you can't do that, and they promptly changed it to say, we're just going to rest it rather than actually cancel it because it actually had been terminated and taken out of existence and removed from future hmm. BBC plans. Removed from the timeline. It was indeed wiped, as if removed from the matrix. <laughs> Gallifrey but it was there was an awful lot of trouble behind the scenes as well at this time because it started off there was a fractious relationship already between John Nathan Turner as producer and Eric Sayward as the script editor and I think it was Eric's partner Jane Judge who was the secretary in the show came up with the idea of why don't we just put the, put the doctor on trial since the whole show's on trial and so it was a deliberate so it was, it was so, a nod to what Greg yeah, was sort of, talking about um, mirroring reality yeah. in a way so running in parallel and I'd never been accused of doing that before oh. <laughs> many things I could be accused of but definitely not that so we had a doctor we had um, obviously Colin and, and Nicola came back but behind the scenes the relationship between JNT and Eric Stayward was getting worse and worse with every progressing week to the point where they weren't communicating 
and at least uh, these days you'd be able to send an email, but uh, at that point it was it sounds like it was messages being passed through a third party. How how much of that sort of stuff came over? Was you know as a as a fan at the time, it was a member of the Dwaz that had access to yeah. sort of what you know fan sort of gossip or whatever. Yeah, but there how wasn't much, how much of that sort of none of that came out because right. all that was reported at the time was Eric Sayward had left. Yeah, and um, but because obviously the the Dwaz exec were keeping in with JNT, so they could get access to information pictures and whatever else for the for the newsletter but it was a very acrimonious split and i think it was only around the time that uh, sayward did an interview with starburst i think it was yeah and basically he was just saying what it was impossible to work with jnt uh, he was a nightmare to to work with and, and just that their work how much their working relationship had collapsed to the to virtually that they couldn't even be in a room together and it's quite sad given that um, and this is a pair who came up with you know, season 21 is one of my favourites with you know, Davison's last year um, and you know, that was such a great season and then within two years it's just all fallen apart I get the impression reading and watching a lot of stuff now that I don't think um, it was almost an accident waiting to happen I think the, the relationship between Eric Sayward and John Nathan Turner whose fault was it? Because I, don't, well, I don't think it was anyone's fault I think it's just a question of rapport I, don't, I, just, I just get the sense that they were never on the same page See, I've always thought that Jonathan Turner is a divisive character. I mean, for me, he is... For, to me, oh. this is controversial, Michael Gray is not the guy that killed Doctor Who. Jonathan Turner is. Well, see, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things. You look at it and you sort of think some of the decisions he made were crazy. Like, as much as we all love Colin Baker's costume nowadays, it was, it was insane. But then he cast people like Nicola Bryan and Janet Fielding. So on a level, he, he knew what he was, thought he was doing. You know, he, he cast really well... And um, everyone knows and talks about how he was really good at the publicity. It was his first ever executive producer job. First producer job, yeah. And his last as well. Babysat by Barry Letts in his Mm. first series. He's he's very divisive. These days I come down on the the positive side of him because he he was essentially doing a thankless job. I'll name drop here uh, because it's difficult to say this without actually name dropping it, but Stephen Moffat tells me, because I was bitching to Stephen about... Nathan Turner and Stephen was having none of it I mean, and, and he just thought that Turner was uh, you know basically saved the show managed to keep it going despite the shoestring budget that had been mm. imposed on it and and was more creative than people give him credit for I mean, I mean the thing is JNT I think his skill was in working with budgets in terms of actual yeah. creative decisions maybe not necessarily the greatest but some, some of the things that he wanted in terms of story context um, and obviously looking for the stunt casting, but he was definitely he was sound accountant who knew exactly what he was doing. He was the one who was able to budget, so they could go to France for City of Death, and pretty much kept quite a lot of, you know, season seventeen on track when there was inflation was just going out of control. And the fact we did manage to get so much of it was actually thanks to GNT. It's that that we did lose Shada, but what we got, we've got to give him credit for that. I think as well as it's worth remembering that um, he was very aware that the program had to to evolve and keep going, like, you know, to so that it would, you know, keep going full stop. Like the um the revamped title sequence, the stylistic approaches for Tom's last series, he cast Peter Davison, who definitely got bums on seats. He as Kenny says, he knew the BBC system really well. So he he, he made sure that all, all the money that he got went on screen. Do you still, Tom, do you still sort of slag him off? Or you still do, or do you have a more do you have a more a balanced sort of view of him now or do you still I don't have a balanced view. Because really? I still associate him right. with the period where I, I stopped loving Doctor Who and I stopped watching it because I was too embarrassed to watch it. And, I, and I, 
I think there are some things that clearly he deserves respect for some of the decisions he made, but there are some mistakes that are unforgivable. And I'm sorry. I will, to my dying day, I will insist that casting Bonnie Langford in Doctor Who was a nail in the coffin, if not the final nail in the coffin. I think it was a disastrous mistake. But it's funny how years later she's gone on to win you know, quite a lot of awards, TV awards for her time in EastEnders, where she was superb. I can, I can understand that. I didn't even know she was in EastEnders. I've yeah. never watched EastEnders. I, I, I think so. I can, I can understand. Because I, I remember seeing the publicity photographs and Bonnie was cast, you know, Hunt and Colin and the Peter Pan rig and all that and just sort of going oh no but you know I thought but I remember episode 9 I thought she was terrific I still think she's terrific I'm, I'm not even one of these people that says that what she did with Big Finish sort of um, reappraised or whatever I, I, I've always thought she was great but again I can understand I mean I was, I was you know a little bit younger than you but was still probably cringing just as much but I hadn't reached my embarrassment threshold I mean, do you know what I mean the, the, I, I didn't really reach my embarrassment threshold a few years ago well, of course What's an embarrassment threshold? Just when you're <laughs> just when you're cringing. Oh well, yeah, of course. Yeah, you wouldn't know, would you? Um, <laughs> I mean, you get celebrity casting all the time. Now you get it in every right. show. You get it well, on look at, Morse. Look at Billy Piper. Um, you know, she, well, you absolutely. You get you know, it all through the new who. Absolutely. But there's celebrity casting and the celebrity casting. I think most celebrity casting that has happened in the show since it was relaunched, you think, yeah, that's good. That's a good choice. I can't think of anyone who's appeared that think, well, he shouldn't, he or she shouldn't have been on it. But I, I, I'm sorry, uh, casting Violet Elizabeth Bott <laughs> in Doctor Who was was honestly, I, I'm I'm still enraged about it right. all these years oh, later. Mate, go for a, go for a walk. <laughs> right, let's get on to it because yeah. uh, you know our listeners, both of them, have got busy lives. <laughs> Well, I suppose there is a billion to one chance there was a place called Marble Arch on Ravelox. And they wrote in English? Well, that's another billion to one chance. It does begin to seem a little unlikely, doesn't it? Well, Doctor, we're on Earth, aren't we? I said it felt like Earth. It's in the wrong part of space for it to be your planet. Besides, according to all the records, this is Ravelox. Well, and how do you explain this? Well, then. Can't. Not yet. Unless, of course, perhaps they collected railway stations. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, not impossible, though. Not as impossible as the other explanation. What's that? Well, that somehow or other your planet and its entire constellation managed to shift itself a couple of light years across space, after which, for some reason, it became known as Ravelox. Well, what time are we in? <sighs> Long time after your period. Uh, Two million years or more. So what happened to London? Wiped out. Well, if this was London. Doctor, I know it is. I can feel it. Now don't get emotional. Don't get emotional. This cinder we're standing on is all that's left of my world. Everything I knew. Kenny, tell us what uh, TARDISWiki.com says about the first adventure in this box set, The Mysterious Planet. Indeed, Tom. The Mysterious Planet was the unbroadcast title given to the first four episodes of The Trial of a Time Lord, the season-long story that constituted season 23 of Doctor Who. The story marked the first appearance of the Inquisitor and the Valyard, two characters who would appear throughout the season, along with Sabalom Glitz, who would appear again later in the season and also in season 24. 
With this chapter, the series returned to half-hour episodes. Inaccurate, it's 25 minutes. Also beginning with this story, the series was now completely produced on videotape, with the exception in this story of a brief special effects sequence in episode one. With this episode, Peter Howell's rendition of the Doctor Who theme was exchanged for a mysterious and surreal arrangement of the theme tune composed by Dominic Glynn. It would remain in use solely for season 23 and close out Colin Baker's era on the series. BBC executive Jonathan Powell was notably harsh when given the scripts to view, citing all his concerns in a memo to John Nathan Turner and Eric Sayward. Such a negative reaction stunned Nathan Turner and Sayward. Sayward was especially rattled as he had held Robert Holmes in high esteem in the past and hadn't queried the scripts as they came in. This was perhaps the moment that Sayward began questioning his own self-belief in the series and doubting his abilities as a script editor. This would later lead to his departure a few months later. This story also introduced some costume changes for the Doctor and Perry. The sixth Doctor entered his second full season with a red check vest and cravat with a bright pink watch chain. To help viewers discern between scenes taking place in different points in the Doctor's timeline, scenes set in his past feature him donning his original turquoise cravat and neon green watch chain for the last time. The following story would feature the Doctor's full new outfit in both past and present scenes and the one after that featured a completely different vest and cravat for the archival scenes, which are set in the Doctor's future. Notably, Nicola Bryan's character Perry Brown starts out wearing more conservative clothing from here out, after spending most of her appearances in loose-fitting and often revealing outfits. Her wardrobe change was a result of complaints that her provocative clothes were inappropriate for younger Doctor Who viewers. I've just remembered one of the other reasons why I didn't like this show. <laughs> well, You're a demon. Oh, well, let's leave the sleaze to one side. <laughs> That's, but you know, she was pretty covered up in time loss and revelation of Daleks, wasn't she? It's pretty much really just um, I remember first couple of stories in that I scene. I remember my mum talking at the time. You know, during I think it, it must have been time loss or something. So, oh God, she's she's wearing something sensible once. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, anyway. it's just an attack. Um, she's got the Barrels, pink, and, uh, yeah, they've got yeah. the leotard and shorts outfits. Uh, and but even then, our, episode our two next episode will be, our next episode will be solely about Perry's wardrobe. But it's interesting, you know, following on from what we were saying, or in my reservations about the show at the time, that, you know, Jonathan Powell had expressed severe reservations about the, the scripts when he saw them. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just older fans it wasn't you know there, there yeah. must have been a general understanding that there's something wrong but I find it really bizarre because when I watched or re-watched uh, Mysterious Planet I really enjoyed it I, it's actually quite possibly my favourite Sixth Doctor story it's it's got so much wit and humour about it the Doctor and Perry have got rid of there's um in the, the special edition there's uh, some a bit of sort of bantering between them in a season 22 style and then literally at the end of that scene there's almost like like a kiss and make up, and that's it. The relationship is completely changed from so there on So the special in. edition got like extra scenes that were yes, broadcast. There yeah, are, there's quite a lot of extra extra scenes. Um, we'll come to that shortly. Yeah, there's, but, there's kind of longer edits of every episode, and I, right. I've I've watched a few of them, but I don't know the I don't know the story well enough to really spot every single difference. But there's quite a lot, even early doors, because normally in in trial we just join the Doctor and Perry walking through the forest in Ravalox. Whereas the extended cut has got the TARDIS materialising, it's got them wandering about, having some banter, 
Um, and he throws season 22 sort of almost like that more acidic dialogue between them. And then literally there's just, it's a lovely short scene and it's over and done within about 30 seconds where it sort of completely redefines the relationship entirely. And you can see these, these guys are pals and it makes such a difference. Go back to what you're saying about the scripts. This is, this is one of the things, and it struck me again whilst you know, watching some of the, the material on the DVD, especially there's a, a writer's room feature where they talk, they have interviews with the writers who were working on the original plan season 23 before the cancellation in 1985. And the thing that just struck me was, why did they do the trial in the first place? Because they know the programme is on, is on its last legs. You know that the axe is, you know, sort of Damocles or whatever, he was hanging above them. I, to this day, can't understand why they, they went for this big, long, involved, overarching theme when what they should have been doing was Daleks versus Cybermen, Six Wives of Henry VIII, guest starring the Master. You know, so they, should have to, they should have really tarted it up, sexed it up. They should have gone, this is what we can do. But in, instead, they went for something that was a little bit contrived, a little bit inward-looking. You know, I, I just, I'm yeah. still to this day baffled. If, if it, it feels arrogant. It, it feels arrogant to me because I think it's, it, this this will be completely different from what actually happened. But it looks to me that John Nathan Turner is getting all this criticism from senior execs, and he knows that there's you know the sort of Damocles is hanging over the show, and he thinks right, I've got one last chance. Sod them. I'll do what I want to do. Yeah. Not what the BBC or not even what the fans want to do. Yeah. I, I just think that was. An incredible misjudgment. Nathan Turner anticipated being away by the end of that series, didn't he? Yes. He was told it was he not told with very very short notice just where he was about to go on holiday that you know you're making it next year after all you've you know you've had to you've had to get rid of Colin Baker you don't have a script mm-hmm. editor you're, you're gonna have to start again. I think he was I think you could be right I think he was like right last chance for a thousand years. Pfft, sod it. It's possible. I think yeah I think I think the big mistake is bringing here's the Time Lords it's like who cares it's the Time Lords surely just yeah, go just go yeah. stories don't bring in all these years you know mythology so the Doctor's been in trial before I mean yes it's, it's always on trial I just think it's a daft idea having you know this like the linking thing yes we're used to the linking thing now but these days obviously it's you know a buzzword or a buzz phrase you know, bad wolf torchwood yeah Mr. Saxon, something like that. It's in the background, but it doesn't have to be the Pandorica. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't have to be, you know, as in your face as that. Can, can I share my GNT story? Because I meant to, I meant to share it when we were talking about Ark of Infinity. But since this is about the trial of the Time Lord, um, when I was eighteen, I think, I wrote my first ever Doctor Who story mm. uh, in, in a format that that, suggests that, that, that the making been, of Doctor Who suggested. That you know, suggests there have been that you've written several. Well, let's put that to one side. <laughs> Um, and I sent it to Jerry Turner, and it was it was four episodes, and it was called the Seeds of Destiny, appropriately pompous, <laughs> and it was all uh, it was kind of partly inspired by my love of the Trigon Empire. I kind of combined that, and, um, so I sent it off to him, and he sent me this lovely letter back, and I wish I really wish I'd kept it, and it had the the masthead was the TARDIS, yep, and it said BBC, and he, he said um, thank you very much for sending it. Unfortunately, several of the elements in your story have be already been used in the next series, which was Davidson's last uh, series. Uh, well, right. actually not last, uh, middle series, one that started okay. with Ark of Infinity. Because my story had the Doctor being taken back to Gallifrey and put on trial and actually executed. Uh, so I thought this was... This, right. Well, I thought the, I was more chuffed with the letter from yeah, Jonathan yeah. Turner yeah. than I was that I'd actually yeah. my story. But I'm saying GMT was always good for that because I remember writing in 
the office just to say that I'd really enjoyed Mysterious Planet at the time. And I got a nice letter back from him with a, couple, with a few of the signed BBC postcards as oh, well, wow. including cool. Patrick Troughton. Right. Wow. Not bad. Of Even course. Uh, when did Patrick die? 1987. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the trial is... It's, it's something now that I have a lot more, a lot more affection for for it now, for it, what it sort of contributed to, shall we say, the sort of the expanded mythology sort of stuff, like the Valyard character. Um, it really let that, especially like the Virgin books, take the Six Doctor in some really interesting directions. But was it Millennial Rights mm-hmm. um, and Time Your Life, two of the best novels I think that the Virgin put out, which you know, played up this idea of the Doctor's sort of fighting against his future, you know, trying to prevent himself from coming to Valyard, and of course when um. And Big Finish finally gave Colin Baker a regeneration story. The Valyard was heavily involved. I, I like the trial now more for what it's, its legacy in the spin-off media, really, rather than, than what it was at the time. I, I've got, I can, 30-odd years down the line, I'm a little bit less sort of um, puzzled as to why they made, you know, they made, they went in that certain direction, but, you know, I, I've got a lot more time for it now than I used to. What did you think of Mysterious Planet itself as one of the adventures? At the time? Yeah. I just, well, no, I, no, 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 I, no I, I pretty much agree. 100% with what Kenny was saying a minute ago. It's, it's, it is very funny. I did a, I did a rewatch of it all in, in, in um, weekly sort of chunks, weekly episodes on, on its 30th anniversary. And I remember the thing, one of the things that struck me at the time was feeling how Colin seemed a bit more hesitant, not as confident and, and sort of bullish as he, as he was in season 22. That's one thing I sort of I feel about it. He's a, he's a little bit more restrained, but he has a real sort of lightness to some of the humour you know, handbag and mm-hmm. thingy. And, and, yeah, and, and his scenes with Balthazar, are, his scenes with Balthazar are terrific. I love them. It's, as a story, it's quite generic. It would have been a, a you know, a forgettable four-parter, I think, at any other, any other point in the series history. Let's move on to the second adventure on the box set in, in season 23. Mind Warp, and I'll read you out what TARDISWiki.com says. Mind Warp was the unbroadcast title given to episodes 5 to 8 of The Trial of the of a Time Lord, the season-long story that constituted season 23 of Doctor Who. It was the second serial in The Trial of a Time Lord arc. I think we've already said that. Who writes this stuff? It saw the final appearance of Perry Brown in the series from a present perspective and the guest appearance of Brian Blessed as King Unpronounceable. How do we pronounce that? You're Canos! You're Canos. You have to shout it, though. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> On 14th September 2019, the story was shown at BFI Southbank with 5.1 surround sound mix and re-recorded music by original composer Richard Hartley. Uh, a Q&A with Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant was also held. Anyone go to that? No, I didn't. Oh, what a pity. Right, what do you think of Mind Warp, Kenny? Mind Warp is a story that kind of warps the mind. <laughs> is, is there a story, do you think, in, this, in these four adventures of of this season is there one particular story that stands out as particularly weak and is there a story that stands out as particularly good well for me because i think the mysterious planet is really witty it's good humor to it and there's a there's a really nice central idea to the fact that you know earth's been moved away for some reason pulled out of its own orbit stolen indeed a stolen earth that's a good idea somebody should do something with that um and it is there's you know a lot of humor to it and it's very much traditional Doctor Who story, and it definitely feels like Robert Holmes. Um, was for me, Mind War is the big problem with that is it was because there were so many rewrites going on, and this was the, the story that uh, pretty much drove Eric Sayward out. There were scenes where, in fact, Colin Baker's reported several times that there was he wouldn't understand a particular scene. He was wondering, is the Matrix lying, or has the Doctor gone mad as a result of the mind warping machine? 
and Eric would say, well, go and ask Philip Martin. He'd ask Philip Martin, say, I don't know, Philip Martin, uh, he would say, Eric wrote that, ask him. So there's an awful lot going on and it's very hard to work out what's, you know, what is real, what is the real life and what is fantasy. I see what you did there. That's an interesting sort of thing. When you've got the lead actor literally having to make his own decisions about what's actually going on in the story, that that really does sort of suggest that something is fundamentally Ultimately, wrong. Ultimately, that comes down to John Nathan Turner. He was in charge. Yeah. I mean, at the core of it, there's a, there is a really good story there. I think um, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, the doctors get scrambled and we don't know if he's a goodie or a baddie. Yeah. Yeah, and if, particularly given it's a sixth Doctor Who, we've already had moments of particularly the likes when the way his era started in Twin Dilemma, when his relationship with Perry's um, slightly more hands-on than you would expect. So this is very much a sort of a middling story. I mean, we've got a great character in Still, um, very much uh, a villain who's representative of uh, of the eighties corporate greed, the yuppie culture. You know, that everyone out for themselves to get what they can, which is. I think particularly relevant today as well, the way the world's going. Um, I, I just think it's so well... <coughs> politics. Yeah. Indeed, that's, that, and that's Ladies as political and as I'll get. It's a difficult story to love because it's, it's very awkward to watch as well, particularly as the, the, the treatment that Perry gets, given that, um, you know, everybody loves Nicola, everybody loves Perry, mm. and the way that everybody's been so cruel to her and the way that her mind seems to get wiped, her head shaved, and next thing you know... She's got an evil space slug taking over and, and this gorgeous, happy, happy-go-lucky girl has just been wiped from existence. And it's, it's quite awkward viewing. I mean, even I remember watching this when I was 12 and just thinking, that's quite a nightmarish concept. And it didn't sit nicely with me, particularly when they were trying to make Doctor Who popular and family-friendly again. The thing that struck me when I, when I did my anniversary rewatch was um, Perry's treated really badly in the story. In the opening scenes, she has she's very nervous. She she's hesitant about where they're going. She she seeks reassurance from Doctor, and he doesn't give it. He he doesn't listen to her, and then the story plays out, and and ultimately, you know, it, it goes. You know, as far as we know at this point, it goes badly for very badly for Perry. It's an interesting thing when you actually go back and look at a lot of eighties stories that there are a lot of moments when the Doctor doesn't really show a lot of concern about how his companions are feeling in a particular situation or. But this one, it's really, it's, as Kenny says, I find some of it is quite difficult. I, th I think it's four episodes. It looks terrific. It's really stylish. It's, it's beautifully lit. Well, very well played. The costumes, the sets are amazing. It's, Flashing lights, particularly. Yeah, it? I think it's, it's not a difficult, it's, it's not a difficult story to look at. But as, as Kenny says, it's not, it's a difficult story to watch. Now, this is, I've, I've been able to work out. I think it must have been episode two or three of it that I didn't see on transmission. We, we can talk about what happens at the end of episode 8, can't we? We're not worried about yes, spoilers can, and such. No. You know, when, when as far as you're waiting, she's just, you know, ostensibly killed off, I was like, oh, I really sort of wasn't expecting it. And that kind of started to reel me in, as I say, after, you know, that, that the episode of Trial of the Time Lord that I missed on its, on its transmission was probably the closest I ever got to actually escaping Doctor Who altogether and having maybe a normal life. <laughs> so maybe if they hadn't killed, if they hadn't killed Perry, I might have drifted away again. Yeah, but I think... What really makes Perry's apparent death so bad is, even compared with Adric, Adric was trying to save the Earth. But Perry's death is completely meaningless. There's absolutely no, yes. you know, there's there's no emotional impact to it apart from mm -hmm. the shock factor, yeah. and it and it's nasty, and it just feels gratuitous as well. Whereas you know Adric tried died trying to save the Earth. Uh, you had even the likes of Katarina 
and Sarah Kingdom, if we want to include them as companions, that's up to you guys. But even their deaths... <laughs> Very controversy. Indeed. Um, even their deaths, they were trying to do something for the greater good for the Doctor and company. Yeah. But Perry's is just... That's, she's just killed. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, there's, there, is a, there is a slight tendency in some of Philip Martin's stuff to be a little unpleasant, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Particularly towards women? Well, look at me. Well, she, yes, she, you, she, look at, you look at Vengeance and Barros. Yeah, she goes through the ring. She goes through the ring and Vengeance and Barros as well. Yeah. Two women who trans- yeah, tied up, tortured, and transformed into lizards and a bird. I mean, I've only I I bought the box set yonks ago, and I've only watched ever watched the first episode. But my, my memory of Gangsters, which is another Philip, one of the only other Philip Martin things that I've seen, is it's not doesn't really treat women especially well either. Also, just thinking about it, the Creed of the Croman, his eighth Doctor story. Right. Charlie gets transformed and mutated into. Uh, an alien creature, and she's yeah, she's she's mutated as well. That's sort of a, a recurring Phil, theme. Hashtag Philip Martin's preoccupations. What what's your memories of mind block then, Tom? Um, my my only memory really is, and, and and actually, I really do want to watch it again because um, I can remember very little about it. I can remember Perry with with no hair. Um, yeah. I remember Cell, who I. <laughs> <loved. laughs> But that, that's about it. Kenny and I are actually cosplaying this <coughs> episode eight Perry right now. We are indeed. We're doing quite, we're doing quite a good job. Now. Well, Although, let's, <coughs> let's, let's move. I do have to say, Nicola Bryan gives such a superb performance yes. right at the end. She is absolutely incredible. You know, we're used to the sweet, lovely Perry, and all of a sudden we've got a hideous creature, and just the the look that she casts towards the discarded body yeah. of Lord Kev, just the complete disgust in her eyes. Superb. She's, she's excellent throughout. She really is. I mean, she she goes out on a high, definitely. Yeah. Warm. Not cold. The body is warm. Oh, wonderful. Legs. Toes. Toes wriggly. Trunk. A neck. Strong. Head. Free of pain. Colors. Warm blood inside. Oh, I like this. Before we move on to uh, Terror of the OBGYNs, hmm. uh, do we have any suggested jokes? Oh, well, uh, funny you should say that, Tom. Yeah. Oh, because I was right. just thinking, um, what is a chicken's most scary <laughs> Doctor Who story? Right, a, a chicken. chicken. Uh, um, roast light. <laughs> On to Terror of the Vervoids. This is what Tardis Wiki.com says about Terror of the Vervoids. Was the unbroadcast title given to episodes 9 to 12 of the trial of A Time Lord, the season-long story that comes to Yeah, we know all that. While the previous stories of the season delved into past adventures of the Sixth Doctor, this story examined the Doctor's pending future. Using that anachronistic style, it introduced Bonnie Langford as (laughs) companion Melanie Bush, deviating from the formulaic structure where a stranger found themselves meeting the Doctor for the first time and vice versa. Instead, her character was a future companion that the Doctor had yet to meet, something later repeated with the character River Song, 22 years later. On the 23rd of September 2019, Season 23 was released on Blu-ray box set, yeah, we know that, with updated special effects in which this story was also edited into a standalone story. 
With it, a unique new title sequence was created by fan Rob Ritchie. Did you watch the standalone story, or did you? No, watch I, the I went. I went for the. For, I went, sorry, I went for the new version. I just thought this is different because I know the original quite yeah. well. So I thought I'm going to go for this, and oh my god, it's the the titles are. We'll start with them. They are fantastic. It's very much a take on Russell T Davis type era titles with you know with eighty sensibilities thrown in. So you've got all the. It's you imagine the Colin Baker titles but done in the Russell T Davis style with going through that time tunnel. You've got Colin's face coming out at you. You've got the logo swirling around and they've even got a remix of the theme from Dominic Glynn. Yet, I think this is uh, Dominic's second major remix of his theme um, accompanying it. And it absolutely works. It gives it a whole new fresh feel. It's got a new energy, a new vibrancy to it. And it's really, really entertaining, the titles. Unfortunately, I don't really enjoy the story, but the uh, titles are great. <laughs> would you the story, David? I, I really like the story. Episode 10 of Trials, for many years, was the only episode of Colin's tenure, shall we say, that I had in VHS. Because a friend at school had found it, like a year later, he found he had it on Betamax. So another friend got, who had both, he lived in a big house, he had a, he had a VHS recorder and a Betamax recorder. And he was able to copy it for me, even though most of it went over in black and white. So, um, instead of watching episode 10 of Trial of the Time Lord, I expect it not to be in colour. But I like the story quite a lot. As you, as you know, I'm a big fan of Pip and Jane Baker. Um, yes, indeed. Um, but it's, um, the, the new, the new standalone version is, is very entertaining. I remember when I did my big, my big rewatch of the whole thing, um, feeling that it's the story that's the least number of sort of intrusive trial scenes. I remember at the time mm. sort of thinking, if there was a way of just editing them out, this would flow really, really well. And it does. It's terrific. As Kenny says, the, the new title seems lovely. It's a, a nice beefed up version of the music. I didn't I realise that Dominic <coughs> had done it. That's, that's good. Are we going to address the elephant in the sitting room? Um, and we'll come to her shortly. Presumably, <laughs> presumably you mean Bonnie. No, I'm talking about the odd design of the vervoids. Right. Oh, that. Right. <laughs> well, um, it's my OBGYN comment earlier. Um, <laughs> I went to uh, King's Theatre Panto with you every year. Oh, no, you didn't. Yes, we did. And uh, it was Aladdin. It was either last year or the year before. And the Cave of Wonders was clearly uh, intended. It wasn't a mistake. They had clearly painted the Cave of Wonders as part of uh, an, uh, an intimate part of the women's anatomy. Right. And I didn't, <coughs> and I, I was looking at it oh for ages, God. and I, I turned around and Carol was with me. I said, see the Cave of Wonders? She said, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was so obvious. And nobody said anything about it. Obviously, it's a kid's panto. Yeah. Well, I, I, well they have to put stuff like that in for the adults, don't they? Which brings us back to Terror of the Vervoids. Yeah, I don't know. Kenny, you're a man of the world, much more of a man of the world than me. What's your thoughts on the Vervoids? Um, yes, I, I remember, I think, indeed, I think it was Doctor Magazine, uh, I think it was Clayton Hickman's editor at the time, or maybe been Gary Gillett, um, they received a complaint from W.H. Smith's at the time when they ran a Vervoid in the cover because W.H. Smith's <laughs> thought it was actually a picture of a part of the female anatomy, but it actually obviously wasn't, it was a vervoid. When I first saw it, to my innocent mind, I was just <laughs> thinking, no, it's just a funny looking plant thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of material but, on, on what the designers worked on and what they were inspired by. It's just, it's just, it's just nature. Um, it, it was proof, isn't it? <laughs> it was proof, wasn't it, that at the time, Doctor Who was run by a lot <laughs> <laughs> That's where we'll have the trial redacted Beep. Um Yes, it's um it's definitely um I think they work very well as monsters. 
It's a great idea, you know, and yeah. they have they've done apart from was it, they're quite different to the crinoids, and you know, which is the other sort of big intelligent. Yeah. It's a it's a Freudian nightmare. Yeah. You definitely wouldn't yeah. want to find a vervoid growing in your lady garden, <laughs> would you? <laughs> oh God, um, I think you know it's the was it the end of ep- whichever episode which reveals the the girl who's been sort of contaminated is half vervoid, half yeah. human. That that's there's some there's a good idea the execution. Is it you know? Who's the writer? It, it's it's Pep and Jane, isn't it? Oh, of course. So. The, the yeah. thing is, they could have um, they could have made them maybe look a little bit more like Triffids, I suppose, which might have been a little mm. less or crinoids offensive. Yeah, yeah, they could have just brought the crinoids back. Yeah. That might have been that might have been fun. Yeah. Um, it's it's an interesting story. A lot of people talk about the the I'm not well versed in Agatha Christie. I'm not a fan. The the Agatha Christie style who done it, and it does get to the last episode when it seems that everyone is suddenly turning round and going aha. And has a plan and is a baddie, and it is quite dizzying. It's a good story because the doctor is very doctorish. He has a, a nice, a strong relationship with the companion, who I, th- who I think makes it a good first impression. All the three stories that we've seen, it's the one that they've chosen to sort of re edit as a standalone. I think you could probably do it with the other ones, but this one works best because there's, there's not as much. All the trial. three stories up until this point, yeah, you mean? Yeah, yeah. It, um, it, it, it flows really well. And the um, again, I think you know, Kerry was, was saying about the. The special edition, the new a lot of the new effects in the new special edition are just stunning. I I'm I'm a, I'm I can kind of pick and choose when it comes to the Blu-ray box sets. Um, I didn't buy season ten, and on the secondary market it's up to hundred quid already. <laughs> it's nonsense. Only came out a couple of months ago, but you know when I saw the amount of new material that they were putting together for S twenty three, I didn't hesitate. It's the the special edition of the Bearvoid story. I think is worth the price of admission alone. It's definitely interesting because for years I always thought. This is the best story of the season, and I rewatched it a couple of years ago with, with uh, my friend Mark, and we just went through it, and it just fell apart. We unpicked it bit by bit. It just didn't feel cohesive enough, and the characters were sort of stereotypical. They weren't particularly interesting. You've got the Doctor Mel, who are who've got a great chemistry. Colin and, and Bonnie are, are really good together from the word go. But I just think that, you know, here's Commodore to- or Captain Tonka Travers and I think Tonker, there's a good name, makes me think of a truck straight away. Um, I just think they're all just complete ciphers and cliches. I, even, That's, even, is that not the whole point for this story, though? But surely, though, when you've got cliches and things, you try and do something interesting with them because they're not interesting. It's just sort of... The most interesting character in it is Janet the Stewardess, played by the wonderful lady Yolanda Palfrey. She's, you may remember her from Blake Seven. She was... In the, she was the assassin, the young girl assassin in the episode that will come back to me shortly. Um, Project Avalon, was she Avalon? Project Avalon? Anyway. I she, know that, that is the one with the young assassin, yes. Yeah, oh, she's fantastic I and mean, she's great as Janet the Stewardess and you watch and you think, she'd have made a really good companion, she's inquisitive, she's friendly, you know, she displays all the right attributes, she's, she's very, um, yeah, she's, she would have worked for me as a companion. As I'm, I'm sure she would. But I was absolutely gutted when I found out that she died, she died yeah, really young. That's a shame. Yeah. Um, I hate it when that when you when you you know somebody on screen and you think you know they're quite young looking at the time yeah. they can't be that old now and then you look up yeah. wiki or whatever and it turns mm. out they're dying yeah. it's pretty it's very sad. sad let's move on to the last one because we're we're, we're time is moving on okay. David tell us what TARDISFANDOM.com says about the ultimate four righty now strike yourselves in everyone the ultimate four was actually I believe the the original title for the Tear the Verboids episodes. So there we go, right. The Ultimate Four was the unbroadcast title given to episodes 13 and 14, the concluding episodes of The Trial of a Time Lord, 
the series-long storyline that constituted season 23 of Doctor Who. This story marked the final televised appearance of Colin Baker as the Sixth Doctor. After much controversy had surrounded the Sixth Doctor's era, the BBC decided to recast the Doctor the following year to start with a clean slate, ending Baker's tenure prematurely. As a result of Baker's removal from the role, the next episode would begin with the sudden regeneration of the Sixth Doctor into the Seventh Doctor, Colin Baker himself not returning to film his Doctor's regeneration scene. In addition, this story marked the final appearances of the Inquisitor and the Valyard as recurring characters, and the final appearance of Nicola Bryant as Perry Brown in a cameo to give her character closure under happier circumstances than what the events of Mindwalk had offered. This was also the last of the Master's annual appearance on the show. He wouldn't appear again until survival in season 26. Season 23's finale was the final story to which longtime scriptwriter Robert Holmes contributed. Midway through finishing part 13 in April, Holmes entered hospital with a liver complaint. Sadly, Holmes never recovered and died in May. Holmes' illness forced script editor Eric Sayward to finish the scripts. Unfortunately, this would cause the writing process to suffer many setbacks before entering production. The sudden demise of Holmes served as a catalyst for a notorious fallout between Sayward and then-executive producer John Nathan Turner. Sayward, now left without Holmes, had to complete the last episode by himself. Nathan Turner, however, rejected his script felt Sayward's proposed cliffhanger was presented in a way that would encourage Michael Grade, the BBC controller at the time, to make it into a series finale, after Grade had already tried to cancel the series altogether. The Doctor and the Valyard would have tumbled through the Matrix fighting to the death, with the battle's outcome left unknown, but with the assumption that they would be locked in eternal combat if no one intervened. Interestingly, a plot similar to this was depicted in 2015 for the Sixth Doctor's long-awaited regeneration story, The Brink of Death. Not the first time Sayward had butted heads with Nathan Turner over creative direction, his aggravation was enough this time that he chose to resign from his position, banning the use of his scripted editing in further dissent, effectively making this his last contribution to the televised series. The conclusion of the story ultimately fell in the hands of writing couple Pip and Jane Baker, who were left to figure out an ending of their own. They were prohibited access to the original script and given no bearing on how the story was meant to end, but still did what they could to wrap up the loose ends and encourage the continuation of the classic series a little longer. So in other words, just when things were going really, really badly, they bring in Pippin Jane Baker. I think what a terrific idea. I think it was, it was, um, it was all hands to the pumps, wasn't it? Ginty didn't have a choice. We should know. also mention, by the way, you, you talked about the Colin Baker did come back in 2015 to do a regeneration episode. We should point out that was Big Finish, not yes. BBC. Yes. So, yeah, fandom.com, they, they tend it, to assume that you know, you know it's absolutely um, everything in every story, every reference. And some. Um, yeah, we'll keep using them, though, because we like oh, yeah. to slag them off. Absolutely. And it, um. It keeps me awake at night for, for weeks afterwards, trying to, anyway. I remember watching this, and to this day I'm still not quite sure what I was watching. I mean, I was watching it with a friend, and we kind of looked at each other quizzically and said, does this mean the Valyard is the Doctor in the future? Is he a 12th regeneration of the Doctor? Or, you know, who, who the hell is he? He's the distillation of all that is evil in the Doctor. Oh, so yeah. somewhere between dark thought. and yes. somewhere between David Tennant regenerating into Matt Smith, all that regeneration mm -hmm. energy goes somewhere and it goes <laughs> off and becomes the Valyard or something. In all my travelings throughout the universe, I have battled against evil, against power-mad conspirators. I should have stayed here. The oldest civilization, decadent, degenerate. And rotten to the core. Power my conspirators, Daleks, Sontarans, Cybermen. 
They're still in the nursery compared to us. Ten million years of absolute power. That's what it takes to be really corrupt. Did you ever see Michael Jaston as Tsar um, Nicholas II in... Is Nicholas and Alexander? With Tom I, Baker. Tom Baker, indeed. As yes. I haven't seen it. It's a fantastic film, but I have to say, and I really like Michael Jaston, but Michael Jaston's performance is peculiar. He spends all, every, almost every scene wide-eyed staring into the distance. Thomas wide-eyed and staring looking at us. Yeah. And Slightly it, less wide-eyed than normal. It's just weird because he's often been told by the director, look, your family's about to be massacred, you're, you're, you're falling from power, the Bolsheviks have taken over, you've got to look really worried about this. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and and the way he affects that, it's, just, it's quite distracting. It's a great mm. film. Right. It's a I'm very interesting period of history. I've got, I can lend you. Right, okay. But it's just very peculiar. Mm. Anyway, that's Michael yeah. Jason. What, what what do you think of the uh, of uh, Ultimate Four then? I think watching it, you can tell very much that it's been written by different different writers because completely different styles. You've got that Robert Holmes wit, that dark humour. Sort of, he knows instinctively how to write for the Doctor as the Doctor as the Doctor as the late Tim Sticks always said, and then Pip and Jane come in and the Doctor's far more verbose, which I mean is great because you learn you always learn some new words with Pip and Jane. Um, and yeah, that's what you watch Doctor Who for. Indeed, isn't it? Yeah. education. Um, but they but, always. But surely there's a catalyst. <laughs> you fool! You've triggered a rephase shift. <laughs> it's a megabyte modem. Yes, it's um, it's a very interesting you know contrast between the two. I mean, it's yes, they were given the most impossible thing to do, where you've got thirteen episodes in front of them, and you haven't a clue how to how to round it off. So I do have a degree of, of sympathy for them in trying to work some sort of conclusion out of all of this nonsense that's been going on before them. Um, and I do mean nonsense as in behind the scenes nonsense. So you've got you know, part 13, we're going back to the Matrix, again, nod and a wink to please the fans from Deadly Assassin. But for Pip and Jane, it just seems to be a runaround. There's just a lot of, oh, Mr. Popawick, oh, he's the Valyard, and just re reveal after reveal, and it just doesn't quite add up to the sum of the previous 13 parts, unfortunately. Some nice moments. Um, again, Mel is really well written for. I really, I think Pip and Jane actually write well for Mel. Oh, which there's, is, a, there's a surprise. Well, yeah, well. I mean, they they wrote what nine of her nine of the episodes that she was on in television, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. that's true. Nine of her Yeah. All in all, it's it feels somewhat unsatisfying, particularly for Colin, because he's he's giving it his all, and he, I you've got a huge degree of sympathy for him that he's become a victim of circumstance with all the everything that's been going on behind the scenes and ultimately he was the one who had to carry the can for what happened when the creative decisions behind the scenes at the start of the season, he should have been, everything should have been stripped apart, he should have been given a new costume, a more subdued one, and everything should have been planned out properly. The way that Russell T Davis and everybody else seems to do, they do their series plan beforehand and you know exactly where you're going so you're not chopping and changing at the last minute because when you've had that long to prepare a season, to actually have it all falling apart as you go into production, just dreadful. That's the fundamental about the whole series, isn't it? They had so much time to prepare and it and they didn't use it well enough and it I I I kinda disagree with you, old pal. I think episode thirteen and fourteen flow together very well. I think if you didn't know there were different writers you wouldn't know. I remember at the time it all it felt coherent and I, I still think it does. I think I don't think there's too much of a a jump or too much of a difference in the in in Pip and Jane and, and Holmesy sort of styles, both episodes heavily sort of script edited and 
um, adjusted probably by Ginty and Seaward. I think um, the biggest sort of feeling that the last episode really doesn't it doesn't just it doesn't give a justification to the whole the whole trial thing at all. There isn't really a, a moment when the Doctor is able to sort of step up and demonstrate his his morality or his his reason d'être as being a something that's allowed to continue. I think what we get in episode thirteen and fourteen, given the circumstances, is nothing short of miraculous. I think it, Pip and Jane were canny enough to extrapolate something that maybe wasn't intended by anyone else that was working the series at, up to that point, but still works just enough to give you a, a bit of a conclusion. I quite, I really enjoy the sort of the Matrix sort of scenes in the final episodes. It was, I remember very very clearly. This is this this is the sort of thing I'm sure we'll talk about in, in in other episodes that we do. The end of episode thirteen when the Doctor steps into the Matrix and is pulled down into the sand. I remember absolute solid gold clarity. My mum and I sort of enthusiastically sort of saying to my sister, Alison would have been coming up for might just a turn seven at that point. I was thirteen, but my mum and Alison, mum and I saying to Alison. This is what it used to be like. It was the Doctor in peril, proper scary atmospheres, you know. Because um, one of my earliest memories is, is, the, is the Deadly Assassin. And we'll talk about that elsewhere. But that, that cliffhanger of the Doctor being pulled into the ground, proper horror, proper old school, proper old school Robert Holmes, the Doctor's in danger, really exciting, surreal sort of imagery, the sort of stuff that they hadn't, they hadn't done in the programme for so long. It had been Corridors and Rebels, you know what I mean? So it's the, one of the biggest sort of shames is if Robert Holmes hadn't died, I kind of feel he was getting his groove back a little bit towards the end. It would have been really, really interesting if he hadn't if he hadn't gone. Maybe Eric would have left. Maybe the series, I don't know. It would have been really nice just to get some more Robert Holmes. But for me, the as I've already said, the legacy for me for the whole story is what it does for the spin-off media. But Kenny's absolutely right. They should not have started it if they didn't know and have an agreement for how it was going to finish. Yeah. One final point well, on this, I think, is that I mean, I, I will always defend Colin Baker's Doctor because I love the South Doctor. Absolutely. I always have. You're quite like him in many ways, Tom. You're quite brash. You say what you think and you don't care what anyone else thinks. And the fact that you're sitting here wearing a clown outfit is just unbelievable. Well, I, would, I would honk my nose at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think he was very badly treated. And it seems to me if there was criticism from the Hygians at the BBC... The buck should have stopped with John Nathan Turner, not Absolutely. with Colin Baker. Absolutely. I mean, they, they would really have improved and, I think, saved the show in the longer term if they'd replaced him instead of uh, allowing Derek Saver to resign and yeah. allow Colin Baker to, to go. But all water under the bridge, sadly. Tom, just before we move on, just I quickly want to run through some of the bonus content that's on sure. the Blu-ray that's brand new. Um, obviously, we get the Behind the Sofa series where we get um, Colin Baker sat with... Bonnie and Nicola Bryant um, and they're going through you're watching the episodes and it's so great it's just like goggle box for Who fans it's brilliant um, and on the other panel we've got Fraser Hines Matthew Waterhouse and Mark Strickson they're, ex they're, 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 they're a really good trio them. together so you've yeah. got you know, three different very different eras of Doctor Who coming together um, and particularly Matthew is a, is a big Doctor Who fan giving a lot of insight into it providing context to the other two Mark Strickson's very good at sort of asking sort of some of the questions that we've actually been asking about how does this work how does this tell the story yep. what's actually at stake here yeah yep. you can tell that he yeah. works in TV production yeah um, and there's there's so many great bonus features on it like the, the there's the Doctor Who cookbook brought to life Gary Downey's seminal classic from 1985-86. Of course. Um, narrated by India Fisher, adding her Master Chef wonderful tones to it all. And it's presented by Toby Haydock, and it is superb. It's, it's one fun. of the best 
things. I actually texted Toby last night just to because I watched it properly for the first time. Very enjoyable. And it's really, really good. And uh, Toby's delighted with the way it's gone down with fans. I got my copy of the, the cookbook signed by Gary Downey. <laughs> I was so, and got a Paisley photograph. Yeah, got a photograph. Of, I was such a cheeky so and so. Were you a doable barker? The ultimate troll. I have no idea. Just in case people think I've been a wee bit harsh on Bonnie Langford, can I just say one thing in her defence? Years and years ago, Carol and I were having an argument, which is <laughs> so bizarre. The argument was about whether or not she had imagined a show in which Lena Zavaroni and Bonnie Langford had performed. Uh, Jack and Diane together, you know, the John Cougar Mellencamp song. Yeah. I, I was sure she must have dreamed this in some kind of drug-infused haze. Uh, so we found somehow Bon Langford's email online. Right. And she replied within five minutes. And it was a lovely uh, email. And it was just, you know, she was more than happy to explain everything that went on. It, it turned out Carol had kind of slightly misremembered. Tom, you could have asked me. I'm now holding up my mobile. Oh dear. And that is, that is less impressive than you think. I know, I know. Bang, but just the final, thing, the final thing I want to mention before we go, um, one other of the extras is on the Mind Warp disc, which is from a programme called Pomp X, which goes behind the scenes. It's a French programme, which was introducing Doctor Who to a French audience. And you get to see some lovely behind the scenes stuff, particularly on film, obviously making a complete different look to what we have with the videotape. And it's something I heard about at the time and always wanted to see it. And lo and behold, it's there in all its glory. So I really enjoyed that. So all in all, it's a great package trial. I would definitely recommend it. C'est bon. C'est très bon. Well, I would recommend... Well, I can't recommend because I've I've bought it but I haven't watched it yet. But for, but I, I look forward to watching it. So if you still can uh, buy the uh, Season 23 box set in Blu-ray then do so before it runs out and you end up having to pay over the odds for it on eBay. Subscribe to us on iTunes and if you like us, leave a review. And if you don't like us, do not leave a review. Follow us on Twitter at Power of 3 Pod. That's three as a number, Power of 3 Pod. We also have a Facebook page where you can leave comments, suggestions, and of course, listen to episodes of this podcast. So on this particular episode of Power of 3, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from David. Take care. Carrot juice, carrot juice, carrot juice. I have no idea what just happened there. That's Colin Baker's last words. Goodbye.